0: CC, growth journeys from emerging ecosystems to global markets.
1: We're really excited about the infrastructure space. I think, you know, the last fifteen years of fintech have been largely just bringing something offline, online. That's great. Obviously, there's been a lot of success stories, but I think sort of the next wave will involve a lot more, uh, will be a lot bigger and also will be a little bit different. And to make that so, the barriers to building fintech have to come down.
0: Shiel is the general partner at Better Tomorrow Ventures and he has been very bullish on the disruption that will come with the democratization of fintech infrastructure for a while. Prior to becoming a venture capitalist, he started Fee Fighters and exited it to Groupon in 2012. After that, he was all over the place doing a bunch of things at the same time. He did angel investing and invested in a number of unicorns like Flexport, Ironclad, and Ethos Insurance. He started a podcast, which was acquired by Gimlet Media. He started a healthy food and nutrition company, which became one of the fastest growing companies in the US. He launched the 500 FinTech Fund in 2016, and Better Tomorrow Avengers about three years after that. He's laser-focused on fintech and insurance opportunities, and is great at spotting future fintech unicorns. There's a lot to learn from him, and we'll discuss all about fintech in this episode.
1: Hey man, how are you? Great, how are you? Great, thanks. Where are you right now? I'm in San Francisco. Just uh, got back from Europe. I was there for a couple of weeks, and now... Settling back in at home.
0: (laughs) Where were you in Europe? Italy and Slovenia. Man, Slovenia is so random. I mean, I feel like you like Slovenia because we've been there together once a couple years ago for an event. And then when I saw those pictures from you in Slovenia, it was intriguing to see you there again.
1: Yeah, I I love it. I think it's, you know, it's got a bit of everything. The Alps, charming city. It's great. You look like the kind of person who would spend like a couple years in Europe sometime in his life. (laughs) Maybe. Although I find it hard to stay in any one place too long. True, 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 true.
0: I want to start off by a bit of your personal background. After your role at Group One and prior to launching 500 FinTech Fund, you did a bunch of stuff like starting a podcast, starting a food and nutrition company, starting an auction company and angel investing. How did you manage to do a number of different things at the same time? And were you spending most of your time on one particular thing?
1: I would say, yeah, it's a good question. So it's funny, like how I managed to do it is just, I just did it. I think I had a lot of support and help from my friends who every endeavor I did, I had friends that I was working with. And then I think for me, I have like ADD, attention deficit disorder. And I think in some ways, obviously, it's a detriment. In other ways, it's a superpower. And for doing many things, I think it's a superpower because I always need to be doing something, And so, like, idle time doesn't really work for me. So if I'm not doing one thing, I can be doing something else. I have to be doing something else. And so for some people, you know, that is really negative. For me, it's been a real positive. And I think venture capital is a great profession for me because I can work on so many different portfolio companies at once.
0: Definitely, definitely. That should be working to your advantage as a venture capitalist.
1: Exactly. And. Your angel investing
0: track record is also very strong, including companies like Flexport, Ironclad, and Ethos Insurance. How were you sourcing all these deals back then as an angel?
1: Yeah, back then it was super random. Like Flexport, I met the founder, he briefly dated a friend of mine. And from the day I met him, we like hit it off completely. And I said, hey, when you're starting your company, I'm going to be the first check. And so did that. And that was wonderful. Ironclad, you know, the founder worked at Fenwick and West with a friend of mine and Ethos sort of randomly was brought in by a friend who was brought in by Sequoia. And, you know, obviously each of those have done phenomenally well. Man, yeah. I mean, all of these companies end up doing
0: really well. And then you raised the five hundred FinTech Fund about five years ago, I guess, and did 80 investments around the FinTech space. What portion of your portfolio was international companies?
1: Good question. I would guess about 25, 30%, something like that. Cool,
0: cool. A lot of our audiences more of um, international founders who are either starting locally or they want to make the move to the U.S., have their technology offices back at home and then expand in the U.S. market. So it's it's great to have investors like yourselves who are more bullish um, international companies as well.
1: Yeah. And in our new fund, I think we probably even have more, higher percentage of international companies. I think we probably are At one-third or maybe a little bit more international.
0: Nice. nice, pretty nice. And there are thousands of banks in the U.S., whereas only a couple dozen large banks in most of the countries in Europe and Asia. How does that change the landscape from an opportunities perspective? Do you think the problems with traditional banking in the U.S. is larger compared to the other places?
1: Yeah. So in the U.S., the history is very fragmented, regional, state-based. And then Only relatively recently do we have these big national banks. I think even though there are so many different banks, really the power is concentrated in the big five banks in the United States or, you know, the big 10. And so it's not that different than the rest of the world. I I do think it's really hard for these companies, these banks to innovate. I'm actually on a sort of fintech advisory board for one of the big banks, and so I get to see it somewhat firsthand, how difficult it is to, for them to innovate. Like There's just legal burdens, organizational challenges. It's just really hard for them to do anything truly innovative. And so I, I think there's just like a massive opportunity for FinTech. Being part of this FinTech Advisory Board has made me more excited about my core job.
0: Yeah, and putting banks and their technological maturity or innovation aside, Unmet financial needs are huge in the emerging world. What's your thesis and strategy in investing in financial services companies that target the unbanked, especially outside the U.S.?
1: Yeah, so super, super excited and bullish on that space. I think it's a lot easier to get somebody to use a product when there was no competition. So if you're getting somebody who was not previously banked onto your neobank, that's a lot easier than having somebody switch. And most of the successful products are innovating in a space where there was not real competition. And so I think the unbanked is a huge opportunity. For me personally, it's like very interesting to me. I lived in India and worked in microfinance and I was literally, you know, to serve one customer, like I would go out to a farm and I was like taking a bus and then getting on the back of a motorcycle to give money to this one customer. And now that is all done on the phone. And it's incredibly powerful. You know, Just the transaction costs were so high and now they're so low. And that's very exciting. We invested in a company called Chipper Cash in Africa from the 500 FinTech Accelerator, actually. So what they do is it's a peer-to-peer payments app in Africa. And then they're building more like neobank type stuff on top of it. So they have a card product, they have stock trading, they have crypto as well. But What's amazing is these guys grew in just two years from zero customers to 4 million customers. And that's because this population was starved and didn't have a product that was serving them adequately. And so I think markets like these are very exciting for us. Definitely.
0: And what are some of the other fintech trends and or opportunities that you are bullish on?
1: So I, I think we're really excited about the infrastructure space. I think, you know, the last 15 years of fintech have been largely just bringing something offline online. That's great. Obviously there's been a lot of success stories, but I think sort of the next wave will involve a lot more, uh, will be a lot bigger and also will be a little bit different. And to make that so the barriers to building fintech have to come down. So a decade ago, simple started bank simple and it took them nearly $10 million and two and a half years just to get their first card in market. Today, we have, thanks to companies like my portfolio company, Unit, in the United States, we have banks getting off the ground in six weeks with two people, no money raised. And that's a phenomenal opportunity. It means that there will just be so many more neobanks and banking products that'll be available to end consumers. And then also, A lot of non-fintech companies will become fintech companies through services like this. Mm -hmm.
0: The company that you just mentioned, Unit, which is Embedded Finance, they just raised a $50 million Series B, and they enable non-fintech players in the technology space to provide financial service to their customers. I feel like this is easily a trillion-dollar market, and this can even become bigger than banking itself. Would you agree?
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, what they're doing is they're the interface to the bank behind the scenes, We think that there's just a tremendous, tremendous opportunity for this business. And if they had existed, Chime would be built on top of this company, like all of these neobanks would be built on top of this company. And then also other businesses that are sort of vertical SaaS companies that are offering banking services would also be built on top of unit. A lot of the companies that you invest in are either enablers of new services that
0: couldn't exist before or wasn't feasible to exist before or are targeting a previously overlooked underserved market, is there a framework or specific things you look for in a market to see if a widespread disruption is about to come?
1: No, that's a really good way of framing it. I would say we just think about, broadly speaking, how large is the opportunity here? So we like to invest in markets that are large, typically speaking. So, so far in the new fund, we've only invested in markets in terms of countries that have hundred million population or more. I guess Turkey, you're not far behind, right? You're probably 85, 90 million or something like that. Give us a couple of years, we'll get there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then large growing emerging middle class with smartphone penetration. And so we think if you're serving in those markets, there's probably a big opportunity. And then in terms of like the other stuff, because we invest at seed, it's really hard to foresee how big these markets are going to become. And I think really more than anything else, we're investing in in great founding teams. Definitely. And you started Better Tomorrow Ventures about two years ago with a
0: similar thesis around early stage opportunities in fintech. What are some of the differences between 500 fintech fund and the Better Tomorrow Ventures fund?
1: Yeah, sure. So first is the size. You know, 500 fintech was 15 million. BTV is 75 million. And at 500 FinTech, we were investing primarily in accelerator companies. So we were giving companies $150,000 for 6% of the company. So really favorable terms, investing at a $2.5 million valuation. The multiples on some of those companies are really phenomenal. But we were splitting the deal with 500 Startups, so we got 3% of the company. So we weren't investing enough money, or weren't owning enough of the company. Now we're owning... I think an average of about 10% of our companies. Oftentimes I'm on the board. So we're a little bit more hands-on in our companies than we were then, although we were pretty hands-on then too. And then just, you know, the ownership makes things very different. And we're a little bit more concentrated. In this fund, we will have probably 35 companies in total.
0: It's still pretty diversified. And you're in year two now. How many investments have you made from BTV? We've done about
1: 20 investments from BTV.
0: Okay, so maybe next year or so
1: you're going to start or launch your next fund. Yeah, something like that would would probably be a good bet. The other thing we've done is like we've really supported our companies through many rounds in a way that we were not able to through 500 FinTech. So we've done a lot of SPVs into our companies and have deployed a lot more via SPV than from our core fund. So we've done, I think just in Q1, Q2, we did something like 55 million of SPVs. Wow, that's crazy. That's something that I really
0: want to get involved into because a number of our companies from Fund One are now raising much larger rounds, and we do have the access. Whether we can build an SPV around that is obviously a question of where we can generate the demand from a capital perspective here in Turkey. That's still questionable, but I really want to go into that model where we're launching even small SPVs, 5 to 10 million SPVs once every quarter would be a great start for us.
1: Yeah, I would say start small. Look, like I started very small. My first couple of SPVs were like in the hundreds of thousands, sometimes like very small, like 300,000, 200,000. And now I think because of that track record, those companies doing well, now it's pretty easy for us. Like we just did an SPV of 12 million into one of our portfolio companies. And I think because the folks who backed us back when it was $200,000 had success and saw, saw them doing well, now there's a lot more capital behind it.
0: Well, it's a great model for VC to scale itself beyond what it can, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And
0: given the complex value chain in the finance industry, trying to enter a market with an incrementally better solution um, is almost impossible and you definitely have to create value for a number of players along the value chain to have a successful
1: go-to market. Do you agree with that? Totally. Um, I'd say yes, and but also you may have a much better product or you may have much better distribution in some way. And, you know, increasingly distribution is really hard. And more and more companies are competing for that I dollar. And a lot of these companies are just buying ads on Facebook. And at the end of the day, like if your entire business model is predicated on you being a better buyer of ads on Facebook, it's probably like, it's going to be very difficult. So I think some companies have done a lot in building community, and I think that's going to serve them really well.
0: I think Albert is one of them, the startup that democratizes smart money management. It was one of your first portfolio companies from the 500 Fintech Fund. And Albert raised a total of $170 million today. And the personal finance space has grown drastically ever since. Looking into um, neobanks, personal finance apps, investing platforms, and the like, they all seem to step into each other's territories right now. Do you think we'll see further unbundling here, or is the market moving towards more bundling? In these personal uh, financial app companies,
1: yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's very true. So all of these companies in this space, personal finance management, broadly speaking, started out in one vertical. It was either savings, investing, lending, or in you know, in the case of Albert, advice. And then all of them now have features of the others. So Bridget, Digit, Acorns, Dave, Stash, Wealthfront, Betterment, Robinhood. All of these products, you know, started in one and then moved to get to multiple. And I think all of that being said, it's really hard to compete in multiple. Like they're all still known for what they were first known for. And many of them had success in one category. And then it may turn out that that category is saturated. An example would be Dave or Bridget. So um, do you know those companies? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Dave is basically a payday loan of sorts. So like they'll give you 75 bucks so you don't overdraft. So it's overdraft protection. And when these guys started three, four years ago, it was just like the market was so excited about this product. Their CACs were really low and they're making money hand over fist. And then CACs have gone up so significantly now that it's just a lot harder business. And now, so they basically have done an entire pivot into being a neobank. And so I think this sort of thing is happening in a few different categories and everybody's pivoting into being a neobank. So we'll see how it all plays out. Do you think that would bring consolidation in this
0: space as well? More mergers start to happen?
1: I think there will be some consolidation. I think it'll be, you know, companies like... Credit Karma, which is now part of Intuit and NerdWallet and those kind of the bigger players acquiring. You could even imagine like Square Cash, maybe being acquisitive or, you know, SoFi, these kind of players as well. Interesting. And
0: you were at the board of Kin Insurance as well, an insurtech company that offers personalized home insurance solutions that raised $150 million to date. Kin's premise around property data points, the Kin network and the reciprocal exchange is very interesting. Can you briefly discuss what the company does and how it is disrupting home insurance with a D2C model?
1: Yeah, sure. So first of all, the company is homeowners insurance. So what, what they do is homeowners insurance. So if you own a home and you have a mortgage in the United States, you're required to get insurance. And the insurance covers many things, but think about fires, think about flooding, and theft. And so what Kitten specializes in is coastal areas. So areas where there's the most risk of flooding, hurricanes, and then also fires. So their markets where they're active today are Florida, California, and Louisiana, and soon they'll be active in many more. And they have realized that the underwriting models that people use to to determine risk in your home are like ancient. They don't take into account climate change. There's all these other things that they don't take into account. So they figured, hey, like we can do a better job of underwriting these customers. So that's that's one innovation. Another innovation is going direct to the customer. So in the United States, the average insurance agent is like 62 years old. And most people like you or I do not want to go to an agent to get our insurance. But 75% of homeowners policies are sold via agents today. And the reason for that is the companies just, that's how they always did it. And there's a structural business reason that they're set up, like they can only sell through the agents because if they sell direct, there's a channel conflict with their agents. They don't want to give up that lucrative channel. So in insurance, we believe there's a huge opportunity in just going direct to the consumer. And Kin is going direct to the consumer and has had a pretty good amount of success doing that. And then the other thing you mentioned is the reciprocal exchange. This is somewhat complicated, but in insurance, the, in exchange means if you and I were in the exchange, like we're a pool that are insuring, that are exchanging our insurance contracts. So we are sort of lowering the risk by us being pooled together. And Kin in Florida is structured as a reciprocal where the homeowners are insuring themselves and then Kin is managing that process. So it's a pretty cool, interesting structure that gives them a lot of leeway. And We believe that the reciprocal structure should be a lot more popular than it is. And we think it's it's in some ways the future of insurance. There's
0: bigger disintermediation in insurance than banking. Reinsurers are coming down closer to the customer. Digital MGAs are popping up everywhere. Consumers are pulling together to lower their risk. I think that disintermediation here in insurance is even bigger than in banking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. I also think, you know, the insurers are actually getting hip to this. So one thing that's interesting is in banking, all of these neobanks are built on like really small banks. Because there's a variety of reasons, but the main one is interchange in the United States. You have to work with a bank that has less than $10 billion in deposits to get favorable interchanges. So all of every neobank in the United States is built on top of a bank with less than $10 billion in deposits. So you got to work with small guys. In insurance, it's actually the opposite. Like you want to work with the big reinsurance partner because there's massive benefits to scale. True,
0: true, true. And with these small insurance providers, you can't even work with them, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Given how shallow, yeah, their total risk pool is.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And what's your take on blockchain technologies and their adoption in finance?
1: So I think it's pretty early today, but we're starting to see some interesting use cases. More specifically, in FX, like using USDC, and then of course there's like. Just the purchasing of crypto, which I think is a different beast. But I think, as far as we're concerned, we invest in pure fintech. And we're just now, for the first time, seeing like pure fintech applications come out using blockchain, te- blockchain technology. It hasn't been announced yet, so I can't talk about it, but we just did our first investment in a company that is like a blockchain company.
0: Interesting. We also did one company um, that uses circle on the back end to facilitate cross-border transfers, I'll send you their deck after the call.
1: Cool. Yeah, I would love to.
0: And do you think DeFi will be able to grow beyond servicing the crypto rich and
1: create more value in real life? I think so. I think there's a long way to go. <laughs> I like the way you framed it, serving the crypto rich today. It's true. But I think there's a long way to go, but there's so much opportunity. So I am bullish on DeFi. It's just for our fund, it hasn't made sense yet, but it's something we're tracking closely. It's going to start making sense, I guess, for the next fund. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, Shilam, this was a great discussion and thanks for joining the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great.
0: It's always very inspiring to talk to Shil and his understanding of the fintech landscape is unprecedented. If you're interested in talking to him, shoot me an email. See you in the next episode. To stay in the loop, go to our website, getcc.com or follow us at GetCC on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube.